This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. The BFM Breakfast Grill, connecting you to the top people and ideas. Powered by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. BFM 89.9, I'm Keith Kam. This is The Breakfast Grill. Everyone knows when it is World Cup season, even if you aren't a football fan. FIFA is the organising body for arguably the biggest global sporting event that takes place every four years. FIFA is synonymous with branding from World Cup-themed potato crisps and beers to limited-edition fizzy drinks. It is also tied to money... Big money. The last World Cup brought $6 billion into its coffers. The coming one in Qatar is estimated to bring in more. How much of FIFA is a business? Is it all about the beautiful game anymore? Or is it all dollars, dineros and dimes? On the line with me this morning is Simon Chadwick. He is a professor of sport and geopolitical economy at the Scammer Business School. He is also co-author of the Business of the FIFA World Cup. Good morning, Simon. Good morning to you. Thank you for inviting me to, to speak. So Simon, I want to start with the last line in the book, football is a gift to the world and a resource for hope. Football will win. Because going through the history of how FIFA has evolved, it really does appear that it views the World Cup as something you know, about monetary gain and revenue generation to fund its operations across each four-year cycle. How do you see from the current setup that football will ultimately win? I guess in simple terms, um, we're actually just talking about Uh, kicking a ball. Uh, And we shouldn't lose sight of that. I think a lot of people have lost sight of that over over recent times. Um, And ultimately, whether you're appearing in the World Cup in Qatar or you're a kid in a street somewhere Mm -hmm. in downtown Kuala Lumpur, it's ultimately about kicking a ball. And I think that one of the important things to keep in mind about football in particular is, is we, we very often call, refer to it as the people's game or the global game. Yeah. And it's one of the things I think that unites most of us, not all of us, but it unites most of us. And, and, and the reason that we can characterize it in this way is that football is a sport with very limited barriers to entry. So if you compare it to, for example, cricket, crickets, you need equipment. You need to understand the rules, and and as uh, as you probably know, those rules can be some sometimes somewhat, somewhat complicated to to understand. And so, if you try to explain cricket to people around the world, you know, they just don't get it; they don't understand it. Whereas with football, so long as you've got a space, something to kick, and a goalpost, it's something that engages people around the world. And so, I think we should we shouldn't lose hope, and we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that there's something very simple very pure and and actually very easy in terms of consumption about football. But of course, alongside that comes all manner of different financial, economic, industrial, political, sociocultural issues. And that's where I think FIFA has been trying to get itself back on track. It's it's becoming an advocate for making football truly global. It has outlined 11 key goals that it wants to implement. Why would they need to come up with these goals now? Have they realised something that's been too romanticised? I think, you got, again, you've got, to, you've got to remember that ultimately FIFA's core business or main responsibility, if you like, is to be the global custodian or the global guardian of the sport. And if you go back 100 years and, and keep in mind that in 2030, it'll be 100 years since the first World Cup was staged, essentially FIFA was there to ensure that there was consistency in terms of rules and and opportunities for staging um, global competitions. 
And I, th I don't think that role has gone away. But as with any electoral system, unless the electoral system is independently monitored and there are certain standards of governance that are upheld, inevitably it becomes corrupted. And certainly we went through a period, I would say probably um, starting in the late part of the 20th century, but certainly into the first decade or more of this century, where this democratic institution became corrupted and what we saw in particular around the announcements of the, the 2018 and 2022 World Cup hosting decisions, which was yeah. made in 2010, that served as a lightning rod for um, concerns about corruption. And so as a consequence of that, what we're now seeing is a new FIFA trying to emerge that is not only more transparent and better governed, but I think also is trying to fulfill its original purpose, which is to take care of the global game. But to do so, realising that you know, we live in different times to the 1920s when uh, FIFA was first established. And so there needs to be a, an economic and financial dimension to what they do. And I think there also needs to be a geopolitical dimension too. Yeah, but before we get into the 2010 FIFA corruption and all that, how have they developed the sport up until then? So obviously one of the things that FIFA has done is, is, it, is it ensures uh, that the grassroots of the sport benefits. So from this big cash cow that we see every four years, which is mm -hmm. the Men's World Cup. There are revenue allocation models in place that ensure that there is some trickle down to the grassroots, for instance. FIFA tries to ensure that it isn't just, for example, the big European countries that essentially suck up the financial resources. Uh, FIFA tries to ensure that Southeast Asia, for example, but you know, also in Africa, countries in which football is very popular, but where perhaps the national teams are not as successful, ensuring that they too receive revenues to enable the game to develop. And I guess to set this in some context, you know, whether people realise it or not, we live in a world of, of, of actually a constant battle because you've got, for example, the, the NBA and basketball. You know, the NBA spends a lot of money in China. It's it's spending money in India, in Abu Dhabi. And, and so there are these big competitions between different sports for, for sponsors, for consumers. Mm. And, and so I think what we've got to keep in mind is, is that FIFA is not this kind of pedestrian, very simple organization that it perhaps was when it first set up. It's it's we live in a complicated world, you know, and we live in a fast-changing world. And, and and I think part of what FIFA does is to try and keep pace with this world to ensure that football remains relevant and visible. And one of these 11 goals that it set out is to grow revenue sustainably so that it can reinvest in football. And the last tournament was in Russia in 2018. The revenue reached $6.42 billion. 83% of it was directly attributable to that World Cup event. And it doesn't really cost FIFA much uh, because the infrastructure and operating costs are all borne by the host country. Do we have any idea how these funds were reinvested into football eventually? Well, this is, this is a, that's a, a really good question because we talked uh, a little earlier about, about corruption and, and, yeah. and about governance and, and a well-governed organisation is transparent and open and accountable. And yet, in reality, we're not entirely clear what FIFA spends its money on. Its, its accounts do give it a sense of where it spends and what it spends on. However, in terms of the types of projects in which particular countries, it, it's never completely clear. And so I guess one of the, the next steps or the further steps that FIFA needs to make is when people are asking, well, just exactly how much money you know, has Malaysia 
received from FIFA. You know that FIFA can say, well, this is this is what we've given to Malaysia, and this is what Malaysia has spent it on. But you know, at the moment, we still don't know that. And much of the revenues are also generated from the sale of television, marketing, licensing rights for these quadrennial football events. And that is quite obvious when in 2021, its revenues came in at 766 million, not billion. So broadcasting has also changed over the years. How has FIFA evolved with the evolution to how fans the world over consume these games? Obviously, if you go back to 1925 when when FIFA was established and and then 1930 when the first World Cup was staged, you were talking, you know, maybe people, some people on radio um, would have been able to listen to reports about the tournament and, and very rapidly after that, particularly post the Second World War, terrestrial TV became the main channel of distributing content. But again, radio was important. If we fast forward into the 1980s and also into the 1990s, we then had satellite technology. And what we then began to see is that coverage of the tournament was more widespread, taken to more people. But of course, as digital coverage or digital technology has developed and, and we've seen digital coverage come, it creates all manner of new opportunities for the tournament and content related to the tournament to be distributed. So, you know, obviously we're now talking about social media feeds and YouTube feeds and TikTok and, and whatever else. You know, essentially, FIFA sells rights bundles. Right. And I think the complexity of rights bundling is really important to understand because some broadcasters will buy access to live games. So you know, on your TV, you will see Malaysian state broadcaster, for example, broadcast the game starting at three o'clock. But then other broadcasters might buy recorded highlights packages. Some providers might might buy content that they can show for 30 seconds in, in a news feed or in news. So you know, there is actually quite a complex and sophisticated set of rights underpinning the kind of content that you see elsewhere. But the, the whole point about the digital environment, you know, clearly you know, with social media or a lot of free content, one of the things, not just for FIFA, I think, but for many, many sports is to understand how to monetize what happens there. And and so advertising is one source, but one, what FIFA has just done, it's recently established its, its own digital channel, its mm-hmm. own digital service. And so I think what we're going to see moving forward from here is, is, is new forms, new types of content being created that will be commercialized, monetized through FIFA's own digital service. On the Breakfast Grill this morning is Professor Simon Chadwick, co-author of the Business of the FIFA World Cup. On the other side of the break, we'll find out how inclusive FIFA can be as it navigates another century of existence. BFM 89.9 You are listening to The Breakfast Grill, brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. BFM 89.9, this is The Breakfast Grill and talking to us this morning is Simon Chadwick. He is a professor of sport and geopolitical economy at the Schema Business School. He is also co-author of The Business of the FIFA World Cup. Now, Simon, Qatar 2022 is about to kick off. It is certainly not without its controversy. First of all, Qatar would have spent $220 billion. That's an insane amount considering this is more than seven times what Russia, Brazil and South Africa had spent combined in preparing for the World Cup. You know, all this for a game when people are suffering from starvation in certain parts of the world. Does FIFA recognise that this may be just a tad uh, obscene? I mean, it's an interesting question that doesn't necessarily offer a, a simple and easy answer. I mean, FIFA ultimately will say, hey, you know, what we do is is we we provide the football, um, the host nation provides the facilities. Uh, certainly Qatar 
is seen by many as being the outcome of a corrupt process and, and whether or not we agree with that. I, you know, I think Qatar's staging of the tournament represents a changing world. I don't think Europe, for example, has ever really recovered from the 2008 financial crash. And so there are many countries in Europe that simply don't have the financial resources or the appetite to host the World Cup. Was that the reason why Qatar got the hosting rights? Because the other nations weren't able to come up to mark? Well, and I think that there are various opinions about why Qatar got the tournament, some of them not so positive. My own personal view is that you know, if we go back to 2010, given the, the state of the world economy at that particular moment in time, mm-hmm. um, Qatar was not only had the financial resources, it also had the political will to bid for the tournament. Um, but in the specific answer to your question, Qatar essentially was a British protectorate until 1971. Right. And so this was a country that that very, very suddenly in the 1970s found, it, found itself with lots of financial resources, very little infrastructure, you know, no towns, no cities. Um, no road network, no metro network, no skyscrapers, you know, no libraries, uh, and so on and so on. And, and so what Qatar has done, and this is why it has spent so lavishly and, and so conspicuously, is essentially Qatar has used the World Cup as a nation-building project. If we're talking about stadiums alone and preparation specifically for the tournament and those stadiums, then the costs are going to be comparable with other World Cups. But what Qatar has essentially done is then there are now not only eight stadiums, but eight lane highways connecting those stadiums and a metro network. And a new city. Yeah. And, and a new city, Lusail, which is where the World Cup final will be held. So I think what we've got to think about is Malaysia and, and Kuala Lumpur, for example. You know, the, the city was built for different reasons. And in London, the city was built for different reasons. In Qatar, essentially, what we have is a city Doha that has been built on the back of the World Cup. Yes, it's nation building, but you are actually bringing in thousands, hundreds of thousands of migrant workers into the country to help build the infrastructure. And with reports that thousands of migrant workers might have died since the World Cup was awarded to Qatar, why does FIFA not seem to be putting any emphasis into this? Does it not have some... um, They are, after all, standard barriers for football and they should at least step in to say, hey, this is not on, right? Well, you say there about standard bearers for football, and I think that is FIFA's line still. And and if you look at the letter that Johnny Infantino sent out to national teams two weeks ago saying, forget about all of the other things, you're here to play football. That will always be FIFA's default position. You know, we're not in the business of dictating to countries how they should prepare. We're not in the business of playing geopolitics between nations. What we do is we organise football matches. And so this will always be FIFA's default position. But I think, as you rightly uh, pointed out, there have been serious concerns about the treatment of migrant workers and numerous reports of migrant worker deaths. It's still not clear entirely how many migrant workers have died in becoming involved in in World Cup-related projects. But certainly the attention that Qatar has garnered has stung FIFA. And my feeling is is that the reason we're going to go to the United States in 2026 is because it's just going to be calm for a while and it's going to be quiet. And and some of the the big, big issues, the big challenges, the big criticisms that we've seen over the last 12 years – 
you know, in Canada, United States, perhaps less so Mexico, but certainly Canada, the United States, it's going to be relatively straightforward, relatively uncontentious. And so FIFA can kind of regroup and go again for 2030, which potentially could become a more contentious World Cup. And speaking of regrouping, how has FIFA come out of the 2015 corruption scandal? I think a lot of it is linked with Qatar officials getting kickbacks. And what has FIFA done to ensure these things don't happen again? So I, I do think that FIFA has developed and improved its system of governance, improved its standards of governance. But again, keep in mind, you know, this organisation is not based in Switzerland for no reason. Um, the standards of reporting in Switzerland are you know, somewhat different to elsewhere in the world and certainly you know, other parts of Europe. It's still difficult to know entirely, uh, to get inside FIFA and to see what FIFA really does and to understand the nitty gritty in terms of where does the money come from and where does the money go to. Um, I think the interesting thing about Infantino as a governor is he is different to Blatter. So Blatter essentially, um, the way in which he kind of oversaw this machine bureaucracy which was a strange hybrid of officials in Switzerland, but elected officials who you know, essentially sat on the board of that organisation. You know, Blatter really appeared to turn a blind eye to corruption, whereas Infantino's agenda is, is not so much that he's running a machine bureaucracy, it's more that he's running a business. And so what he can do is he can... It's almost as though there's a free market solution to corruption, which is that if you're big and you're successful and you're generating money and people are getting more then the organization is less likely to be corrupt. But I still think that in that, in terms of the type of organization that FIFA is operating in the world that we live in, I still think that the checks and balances need to be developed and improved. Yeah, I mean, like you said, we still don't know what the funds are being used for, the revenues, how are they being reinvested into developing football? Would you see a time when this sort of transparency might appear in FIFA? But in fairness to FIFA, they, you know, this is actually very, very difficult because you know, we're not just talking about an organisation based in Switzerland delivering products. Yeah, you know, We're talking about a global organisation. And, and, and for me, it says something about the nature of the organisation and how it needs to change in this very complicated world that we now are reading stories that um, Infantino and FIFA are thinking about opening an office in New York so that the governance of the sport will be based in Switzerland, but the commercial operations of the organization will be based in New York. And I think that is being considered for two reasons. Firstly, that it does create this separation between the money and the governance of the sport. But also, I think it's an acknowledgement that the big money if you're talking about making profits from staging World Cup and other activities, is is not in Switzerland. It's not in Northern Europe. It's actually in North America, which still yeah. remains the world's most mature market for sport. About forty percent of the world's uh, sport economy is 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 in North America, and so I think that we are beginning to see some quite significant changes potentially. Um, but even so, it's still a relatively small organization. It's kind of small, me small or medium enterprise. It's it's not much more than that. You know, a, a medium, small, medium sized enterprise running a global sport and in terms of fitness for purpose and in terms of the robustness of its systems, you know, there are things that still need to change within FIFA. Ultimately, FIFA wants to create a strong legacy because, um, you know, they're talking about various options for an expansion of both boys and girls youth tournaments. They are under review, the prospect of increasing the frequency of the FIFA Women's World Cup. Do they not measure up to the financial returns that these tournaments might bring? Is that why it's being so slow to be developed? For, for me, I, I think FIFA has, for a large part of its history, been um, 
a very white male organisation. And if we need uh, an illustration of, of how white and male it is, just look at the list of presidents that it's had. I, I think it's had uh, one permanent non-European male president. It briefly had a, a temporary black male president. But essentially, you know, they've all been white males. They've all been Europeans. And so here is an organisation that has not been especially predisposed towards the women's game, for example, and it is only really in, I would say, in, in the last decade or two that we've begun to see women's football um, being taken much more seriously by FIFA. And I think you know, in, in kind of moral terms or in sociocultural terms, 50% of the world's population is female. And so you would imagine, well, hey, you know, we, we've got to better represent, we've got to better serve, we've got to understand that women want to play football and watch football too. But I think the big change, particularly over the last decade and, and, and perhaps even over just the last five years, is this realisation by FIFA and, and indeed many other governing bodies around the world that suddenly there is money in women's football. And, and so, yes, there is a moral decision here, but I think also there is an economic and financial decision too, which is you know, in terms of those broadcasting contracts that we've already talked about for the Men's World Cup, you can duplicate those for the Women's World Cup and all the sponsorship deals, you can duplicate those for the Women's World Cup. And so you know, we are talking about more revenues, building the game, growing the game, competing more effectively against other events like the Olympics, against other sports like basketball. And so, yes, I think FIFA has belatedly and finally realised that women like football too. But at the same time, I think they also understand that there's potentially big money underpinning the women's game. So ultimately, it's big money that drives football development in FIFA's view. Under Infantino, definitely. I think Infantino has got a very keen eye for the commercial appeal of football. Under Sepp Blatter, the previous uh, FIFA president, I think he was more concerned about his electoral mandate and, and becoming president again. And, and this is why in this very opaque democratic system, democratic organisation that he ran. You know, this is why we saw corruption scandals emerge. In, in Infantino's case, he's much more laser focused on business, on money, on revenues, on commercial performance. And, and so you know, he will be looking at women's football because I, I guess the bottom line for Infantino, what you've got to keep in mind is, is Infantino wants to run for president again. He needs to be elected. And it's a bit like you know any government. If you can give people, if you can give the electorate more money, then they're going to be more positively predisposed towards electing you as president again. So it's the same as in any democracy. Professor Simon Chadwick, thank you very much and have a great football season. Thank you very much. On The Breakfast Grill this morning, we have been talking to a professor of sport and geopolitical economy at the Scammer Business School, Simon Chadwick. He is also co-author of The Business of the FIFA World Cup. I'm Keith Kam for BFM 89.9, The Business Station. The BFM Breakfast Grill is brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.